Hi, uh, this is Tony again. Um, so, uh, good morning. Um, I want to continue reading um, John, John Paul II's Encyclical, The Gospel of Life, Chapter 3. Uh, the title of the chapter is You Shall Not Kill God's Holy Law. And uh, last time... I read, uh, you know, about half an hour more or less. So I'm going to continue reading this chapter. It looks just by kind of guessing. Um, it looks like there's probably another, at least another hour reading, maybe, maybe, maybe more. But I'll try to break it up into half hour episodes, make it a little easier. Um, probably both me and my and any listeners. So. Thank you again for listening. What I'm going to do now is uh, continue, and um, this section, number 58, is prefaced by this quote. Quote, your eyes beheld my unformed substance, unquote. Psalm 139, verse 16. The unspeakable crime of abortion. Among all of the crimes which have been committed against life, procured abortion has characteristics making it particularly serious and deplorable. Second Vatican Council defines abortion together with infanticide as an, quote, unspeakable crime, unquote. Pastoral, pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. The quote is um, from the Constitution in Latin is, quote, Abortus nection infanticidium nefanda sunt crimina, unquote. But today, in many people's consciences, the perception of its gravity has become progressively obscured. The acceptance of abortion in the popular mind and behavior, and even in law itself, it's a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, even when the fundamental right to life is at stake. Given such a grave situation, we need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or to the temptation of self-deception. In this regard, the reproach of the prophet is extremely straightforward. Quote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Unquote. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Especially in the case of abortion, there is a widespread use of ambiguous terminology, such as, quote, interruption of pregnancy, unquote, which tends to hide abortion's true nature and to attenuate its seriousness in public opinion. Perhaps this linguistic phenomenon is itself a symptom of an uneasiness of conscience. But no word has the power to change the reality of things. Procured abortion is a deliberate and direct killing by whatever means it is carried out by a human being in the initial phase of his or her existence, extending from conception to birth. The moral gravity of procured abortion is apparent in all its truth if we recognize that we are dealing with murder and, in particular, when we consider the specific elements involved. The one eliminated is a human being at the very beginning of life. No one, no one more absolutely innocent could be imagined. In no way could this human being ever be considered an aggressor, much less an unjust aggressor. He or she is weak, defenseless, even to the point of lacking the minimal form of defense consisting in the poignant power of a newborn baby's cries and tears. The unborn child is 
totally entrusted to the protection and care of the woman carrying him or her in the womb. And yet, sometimes it is precisely the mother herself who makes the decision and asks for a child to be eliminated and who then goes about having it done. It is true that the decision to have an abortion often, is often tragic and painful for the mother, insofar as the decision to rid herself of the fruit of conception is not made for purely selfish reasons or out of convenience, but out of a desire to protect certain important values, such as her own health or a decent standard of living for other members of the family. Sometimes it is feared that the child to be born would live in such conditions that it would be better if the birth did not take place. Nevertheless, these reasons and others like them, however serious and tragic, can never justify the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. 59. As well as the mother, there are often other people too who decide upon the death of the child in the womb. In the first place, the father of the child may be to blame, not only when he directly pressures the woman to have an abortion, but also when he indirectly encourages such a decision on, on her part by leaving her alone to face the problems of pregnancy. See John Paul II, Epistolic Letter, Molieris Dignitatem. August 15, 1988. In this way, the family is thus mortally wounded and profaned in its nature as a community of love and its vocation to be the sanctuary of life. Nor can we can one overlook the pressures which sometimes come from the wider family circle and from friends. Sometimes a woman is subjected to such strong pressure that she feels psychologically forced to have an abortion. Certainly in this case, moral responsibility lies particularly with those who have directly or indirectly obliged her to have an abortion. Doctors and nurses are also responsible when they place at the service of death skills which are, were acquired for promoting life. A responsibility likewise falls on the legislators who have promoted and approved abortion laws, and to the extent that they have a say in that matter, on the administrators of the health care centers where abortions are performed. A general and no less serious responsibility lies with those who have encouraged the spread of an attitude of sexual permissiveness and a lack of esteem for motherhood, and with those who should have ensured but did not effective family and social policies and supportive families, especially larger families and those with particular financial and educational needs. Finally, one cannot overlook the network of complicity which reaches out to include international institutions, foundations, and associations which systematically campaign for a legalization and spread of abortions in the world. In this sense, abortion goes beyond the responsibility of individuals and beyond the harm done to them and takes on a distinctively social dimension. It is a most serious wound inflicted on society and its culture by the very people who ought to be society's promoters and defenders. As I wrote in my letter to families, quote, we are facing an immense threat to life, not only to the life of individuals, but also to that of civilization itself, unquote. We are facing what we, what can be called a, quote, structural sin, unquote, which opposes human life not yet born. 60. Some people try to justify abortion by claiming that the result of conception, at least up to a certain number of days, cannot yet be considered a personal human life. But in fact, quote, from the time that the ovum is fertilized, a life is begun which is neither that of the father nor the mother, 
is rather the life of a new human being with its own growth. It would never be made human if it were not already human. This has always been clear, and modern genetic science offers clear confirmation. It has demonstrated that from the first instant there is established the program of what this living being will be, a person. This individual person with his characteristic aspects already well determined. Right from fertilization to the adventure where human life begins and each of its capacities requires time, a rather lengthy time, to find its place and to be in a position to act. Unquote. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Declaration on Procured Abortion, 18th of November, 1974. Even if the presence of a spiritual soul cannot be ascertained by empirical data, the results themselves of scientific research in the human embryo provide, quote, a valuable indication for discerning by the use of reason a personal presence at the moment of the first appearance of a human life. How could a human individual not be a human person? Unquote. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Instruction on Respect for Human Life in its Origin and on the Dignity of Procreation. Donum Vitae, February 22, 1987. Furthermore, what is at stake is so important that from the standpoint of moral obligation, the mere probability that a human person is involved should suffice to justify an absolute clear prohibition of any intervention aimed at killing a human embryo. Precisely for this reason, over and above all scientific debates and those philosophical affirmations to which the magisterium has not expressly committed itself, the Church has always taught and continues to teach that the result of human procreation from the first moment of its existence must be guaranteed that unconditional respect which is morally due to the human being in his or her totality and unity as body and spirit. Quote, the human being is to be respected and treated as a person from the moment of conception. And therefore, from that same moment, his rights as a person must be recognized, among which, in the first place, is the inviolable right of every innocent human being to life. Unquote. This uh, same reference, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Instruction on Respect for Human Life in its Origin and on the Dignity of Procreation, Donum Vitae. 61. The text of sacred scripture never addressed the question of deliberate abortion, and so do not directly and specifically condemn it. But they show such great respect for the human being in the mother's womb that they require as a logical consequence that God's commandment, you shall not kill, be extended to the unborn child as well. Human life is sacred and valuable, at every moment of existence, including the initial phase which precedes birth. All human beings from their mother's womb belong to God who ser searches them and knows them, who forms them and knits them together with his own hands, who gazes on them when they are tiny shapeless embryos, and already sees in them the adults of tomorrow whose days are numbered and whose vocation is even now written in the Book of Life. See Psalms chapter 139, verse 1, 13 through 16. There too, when they are still in their mother's womb, as many passages of the Bible bear witness, such as um, the prophet Jeremiah, quote, the word of the Lord came to me saying, I 
apologize. I got interrupted by another call, so I'm going to have to backtrack a, a little bit and reread that last paragraph so we have um, an easier time following this reading. So, um, let's see. Okay. There too, when we were, when they were are still in their mother's womb, as many passages of the Bible bear witness. And here we read, um, Hence the prophet Jeremiah, quote, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist, for his part, addresses the Lord in these words, quote, Upon you I have leaned from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, unquote. Psalms chapter 71 verse 6 and and also referred to Isaiah chapter 46 verse 3 Job chapter 10 verses 8 through 12 and Psalms chapter 22 verses 10 and 11 so to the evangelist Luke in the magnificent episode of the meeting of the two mothers Elizabeth and Mary and their two sons John the Baptist and Jesus still hidden in their mother's wombs. Uh, reference Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 45 emphasizes how even before their birth the two little ones are able to communicate. The child recognizes the coming of the child Jesus and leaps for joy. They are the personal objects of God's loving and fatherly providence. Christian tradition is a declaration issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith points out so well. References uh, Declaration on, the, on Procured Abortion, November 18, 1974. is clear and unanimous. From the beginning up to our own day, describing abortion as a particularly grave moral disorder. Uh, let me just put a parenthetical remark here. Um, you know, John Paul II, and this encyclical, in fact, I, I think in all his writings, has a large number of references to the Bible and other church documents and so forth. And they have... Uh, sometimes fairly complicated citations. What I've been trying to do is just um, put the basic citation. Still, there's sometimes so many that they interrupt the fluid reading of the text. Um, I don't think that can be helped because I don't want to omit the citations. On the other hand, I don't give you the full citation like paragraph numbers and section numbers, so I don't even understand, really, I don't understand fully the the form of the citations. So, um, for those interested in um, exactly how these citations fit into the text, and maybe avoid the interruptions, um, I would refer you to the the printed version <laughs> of the encyclical. Thank you. Okay, continue uh, the text now. From its first contacts with the Greco-Roman world, where abortion and infanticide were widely practiced, the first Christian communities, by its teaching and practice, radically opposed the customs rampant in that society, as is clearly shown in the Didache mentioned earlier. You shall not, quote, you shall not kill a child by abortion, nor shall you kill it once it is born, unquote. Patris Apostolici. Among the Greek ecclesiastical writers, Athenagoras records that Christians considered 
as murderesses, women who have recourse to abortifacient medicines, because children, even if they are in their mother's womb, quote, are already under the protection of divine providence, unquote. Apologia on behalf of the Christians. Among the Latin authors, Tertullian affirms, quote, It is anticipated murder to prevent someone from being born. It makes little difference whether one kills a soul already born and puts it to death at birth, or puts it to death at birth. He who, one, he who will one day be a man is a man already. Unquote. Apologeticum. Throughout Christianity's 2,000-year history, this same doctrine has been constantly taught by the fathers of the Church, by her pastors and doctors. Even scientific and philosophical discussions about the precise moment of the infusion of the spiritual soul have never given rise to any hesitation about the moral condemnation of abortion. 62. The most recent papal magisterium has vigorously reaffirmed this common doctrine. Pius XI, in particular, in his encyclical Casti Conubii, rejected the specious for justifications of abortion. See encyclical letter Casti Conubii, December 31, 1930. Pius Twelfth excluded all direct abortion, that is, every act tending directly to destroy human life in the womb, quote, whether such destruction is intended as an end or only as a means to an end, unquote. Address to the Biomedical Association, San Luca, November 12, 1944, Discorsi e Radio Mensaggi. See also Address to the Italian Catholic Union of Midwives, October 29, 1951. John XXIII reaffir reaffirmed that human life is sacred because, quote, from its very beginning, it directly involves God's creative activity, unquote. A cyclical letter, Mater et Magistra, May 15, 1961. Second Vatican Council, as mentioned earlier, sternly condemned abortion. Quote, From the moment of its conception, life must be guarded with the greatest care, while abortion and infanticide are unspeakable crimes. Unquote. Pastoral Constitution on the Church of the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. The Church's canonical discipline from the earliest centuries has inflicted penal sanctions on those guilty of abortion. This practice, with more or less severe penalties, has been confirmed in various periods of history. The 1917 Code of Canon Law punished abortion with excommunication. Canon 2350. The revised canonical legislation continues this tradition when it decrees that, quote, a person who actually procures an abortion incurs automatic latte sententia excommunication, unquote. Code of Canon Law, Canon 1398. See also Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches, Canon 1450. The excommunication affects all those who commit this crime with knowledge of the penalty attached and thus includes those accomplices without whose help the crime would not have been committed. See the above Canon 1329 and also Code of Canons of the Eastern Churches Canon 1417. By this, reiteration, re, by this reiterated sanction, the Church makes clear that abortion is the most serious and dangerous crime, thereby encouraging 
those who committed to seek without delay the path of conversion. In the church, the purpose of the penalty of excommunication is to make the individual fully aware of the gravity of a certain sin and then to foster genuine conversion and repentance. Given such unanimity in the doctrinal and disciplinary traditions of the church, Paul VI was able to declare this tradition is unchanged and unchangeable. See Address to the National Congress of Italian Jurists, December 9, 1972, and also Encyclical Letter, Humanae Vitae, July 25, 1968. Therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors in communion with the bishops, who on various occasions have condemned abortion, and who in the aforementioned consultation, albeit dispersed throughout the world, have shown unanimous agreement concerning this doctrine, declare that direct abortion, that is, abortion willed, as an end or as a means, always constitutes a grave moral disorder, since it is a deliberate killing of an innocent human being. This doctrine is based upon a natural law and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the church's tradition and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. See Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. No circumstance, no purpose, no, no law whatsoever can ever make licit an act which is intrinsically illicit, since it is contrary to the law of God, which is written in every human heart, noble by reason itself, and proclaimed by the Church. 63. This evaluation of the morality of abortion is to be applied also to the recent forms of intervention on human embryos, which, although carried out for purposes legitimate in themselves, inevitably involve the killing of those embryos. This is the case with experimentation on embryos, which is becoming increasingly widespread in the field of biomedical research and is legally permitted in some countries, although, quote, one must uphold the licit procedures carried out on the human embryo which respect the life and integrity of the embryo and which do not involve disproportionate risk for it, but rather are directed to its healing, the improvement of its conditions of health, or its individual survival." Unquote. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Instruction on Respect for Human Life and Its Origin, and in the Dignity of Procreation, Donum Vitae, February 22, 1987. It must nonetheless be stated the use of human embryos or fetuses as an object of experimentation constitutes a crime against their dignity as human beings who have a right to the same respect owed to a child once born, justice to every person. Charter of the Rights of the Family, October 22, 1983. Article 4b, Vatican Polyglot Press, 1983. This moral condemnation also regards procedures that exploit living human embryos and fetuses, sometimes specifically produced, quote-unquote, for this purpose by in vitro fertilization, either to be used as, quote, biological material, unquote, or as providers of organs or tissues for transplants in the treatment of certain diseases. The killing of innocent human creatures, even if it is carried out to help others, constitutes an absolutely unacceptable act. Special attention must be given to evaluating the morality 
of prenatal diagnostic techniques which enable the early detection of possible anomalies in the unborn child. In view of the complexity of these techniques, inaccurate and systematic moral judgment is necessary. When they do not involve disproportionate risks of the child and the mother, and are meant to make possible early therapy, and even to favor a serene and informed acceptance of the child not yet born, these techniques are morally licit. But since the possibilities of prenatal therapy are today still limited, and not infrequently happens that these techniques are used with a eugenic intention which accepts selective abortion in order to prevent the birth of children affected by various types of anomalies. Such an attitude is shameful and utterly reprehensible, since it presumes to measure the value of a human life only within the parameters of, quote, normality, unquote, and physical well-being, thus opening the way to legitimizing infanticide, and euthanasia as well. And yet the courage and the serenity which, with which so many of our brothers and sisters suffering from serious disabilities lead their lives when they are shown acceptance and love bears eloquent witness to what gives authentic value to life and makes it, even in difficult conditions, something precious for them and for others. The church is close to those married couples who, with great anguish and suffering, willingly accept gravely handicapped children. She is also grateful to all those families which, through adoption, become welcome children abandoned by their parents because of disabilities or illnesses. Quote, it is I who bring both death and life, unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. The tragedy of euthanasia. 64. At the other end of life spectrum, men and women find themselves facing the mystery of death. Today, as a result of advances in medicine, in a cultural context frequently closed to the transcendent, the experience of dying is marked by new features. When the prevailing tendency is to value life only to the extent that it brings pleasure and well-being, suffering seems like an unbearable setback, something from which one must be freed at all costs. Death is considered, quote, senseless, unquote, if it suddenly interrupts a life still open to a future of new and interesting experiences. It becomes a, quote, rightful liberation, unquote, one's life is held to be no longer meaningful because it is filled with pain and inexorably doomed to even greater suffering. Furthermore, when he denies or neglects his fundamental relationship to God, man thinks he is his own rule and measure, with the right to demand that society should guarantee him the ways and means of deciding what to do with his life in full and complete autonomy. It's especially people in the developed countries who act in this way. They feel encouraged to do so also by the constant progress of medicine and several more advanced techniques. By using highly sophisticated systems and equipment, science and medical practice today are able not only to attempt to cases formerly considered untreatable, and to reduce or eliminate or eliminate pain, but also to sustain and prolong life even in situations of extreme frailty, to resuscitate artificially patients whose basic biological functions have undergone sudden collapse, and to use special procedures to make organs available for transplanting. In this context, the temptation grows to have recourse to euthanasia, that is, to take control of death and bring it about before its time, quote, gently, unquote, ending one's own life and the life of others. In reality, what might seem logical and humane when looked at more closely is seen to be senseless and inhumane. 
Here we are faced with one of the most alarming symptoms of, quote, the culture of death, unquote, which is advancing above all in prosperous societies, marked by an attitude of excessive preoccupation with efficiency and which sees the the growing number of elderly and disabled people as intolerable and too burdensome. These people are very often isolated by their families and by society, which are organized almost exclusively on the basis of criteria of productive efficiency, according to which a hopelessly impaired life no longer has any value. 65. For correct moral judgment and euthanasia, in the first place, a clear definition is required. Euthanasia is, the, is in the strict sense, is understood to be an action or a mission which of itself and by intention causes death with the purpose of eliminating all suffering. Quote, Euthanasia's term of reference, therefore, are to be found in the intention of the will in the methods used, unquote. Congregation for a Doctrine of the Faith, Declaration on Euthanasia, Ura et Bona, May 5, 1980. Euthanasia must be distinguished from the decision to forego so-called aggressive medical treatment, unquote. In other words, medical procedures which no longer correspond to the real situation of the patient, either because they are by now disproportionate to any expected results or because they impose an excessive burden on the patient and his family. In such situations, when death is clearly imminent and inevitable, one can in conscience, quote, refuse forms of treatment that would only secure a precarious and burdensome prolongation of life so long as the normal care due to the sick person in similar cases is not interrupted, unquote. Uh, same reference. Certainly, there's a moral obligation to care for oneself and to allow oneself to be cared for, but this duty must take account of concrete circumstances. It needs to be determined whether the means of treatment available are objectively proportionate to the prospects for improvement. To forego extraordinary or disproportionate means is not the equivalent of suicide or euthanasia. It, is rather, it rather expresses acceptance of the human condition in the face of death. Same reference. In modern medicine, in modern medicine increased attention is being given to what is called quote, methods of palliative care, unquote which seek to make suffering more bearable in the final stages of illness and to ensure the patient is supported and accompanied in his or her ordeal. Among the questions which arise in this context are that of the illicitness of using various types of painkillers and sedatives for relieving the patient's pain when this involves the risk of shortening life. While praise may be due to the person who voluntarily accepts suffering by foregoing treatment with painkillers in order to remain fully lucid and if, and if a believer to share consciously in the Lord's passion, such, quote, heroic, unquote, behavior cannot be considered the duty of everyone. Pius XII affirmed that it is licit to relieve pain by narcotics even when the result is decreased consciousness and a shortening of life, quote, if no other means exist, and if in the given circumstances this does not prevent the carrying out of other religious and moral duties. Unquote. Pius XII addressed to an international group of physicians, February 24, 1957. See also Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Declaration on Euthanasia, Ura et Bona, 1980. In such a case, death is not willed or sought, even though for reasonable motives one runs the risk of it. There is simply a desire to ease pain effectively by using the analgesics which medicine provides. All the same, quote, it is not right to deprive the dying person of consciousness without a serious reason, unquote. Pius XII. 
Pius XII, addressed to an international group of physicians, February 24, 1957. As they approach death, people ought to be able to satisfy their moral and family duties, and above all, they ought to be able to prepare in a fully conscious way for their definitive meeting with God. Taking into account these distinctions in harmony with the magisterium of my predecessors, referred to Pius XII, addressed to an international group of physicians, February 24, 1957, also Congregation of the Holy Office, Decretum de Directa Insoritidium, Insoritium Occisione, December 2, 1940. And Paul VI, message to French television, quote, Every Life is Sacred, unquote, January 27, 1971. Inseg Insegnamenti 9. Addressed to the International College of Surgeons, June 1st, 1972. The Second Vatican Council, Pastoral Constitution, Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. And in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that euthanasia is a grave violation of the law of God since it is a deliberate and morally unacceptable killing of a human person. This doctrine is based on the natural law and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the church's tradition and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Referred to Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. Depending on the circumstances, this practice involves the malice proper to suicide or murder. 66. Suicide is always as morally objectionable as murder. The Church's tradition has always rejected it as a gravely evil choice. See St. Augustine the Civitia Dei, one, and St. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica. Even though a certain psychological, cultural, and social conditioning may induce a person to carry out an action which so radically contradicts the innate inclination to life, thus lessening or removing subjective responsibility, Suicide, when viewed objectively, is a gra gravely moral, immoral act. In fact, it involves the rejection of love of self and the renunciation of the obligation of justice and charity towards one's neighbor, towards the communities to which one belongs, and towards society as a whole. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith Declaration on Euthanasia, Jura et Bona, May 5th, 1980, and Catechism of the Catholic Church, Numbers 2281 through 2283. In its deepest reality, suicide represents a rejection of God's absolute sovereignty over life and death as proclaimed in the prayer of the ancient sage of Israel, quote, You have power over life and death. You lead men down to the gates of Hades and back again, unquote. Wisdom, chapter 16, verse 13. And also see Tobit, chapter 13, verse 2. To concur with the intention of another person to commit suicide and to help in carrying it out, through so-called assisted suicide means to cooperate in and attempts to be the actual perpetrator of an injustice which can never be excused 
even if it is requested. In a, in a remarkably relevant passage, St. Augustine writes that, quote, it is never licit to kill another, even if he should wish it, indeed, if he requests it, because hanging between life and death, he begs for help in freeing the soul struggling against the bonds of the body and longing to be released, nor is it licit even when a sick person is no longer able to live. Unquote. I believe the citation is the so the citation says E P period two oh four and C S E L fifty seven three twenty. I'm not sure what those references are to, but I presume they're to some of Saint Augustine's writings. Even when not motivated by a selfish refusal to be burdened with the life of someone who is suffering, euthanasia must be called a false mercy and indeed a disturbing, quote, perversion, unquote, of mercy. True, quote, compassion, unquote, leads to sharing another's pain. It does not kill the person whose suffering we cannot bear. Moreover, the act of euthanasia appears to be the more perverse if it is carried out by those like relatives were supposed to treat a family member with patience and love, and by those such as doctors who, by virtue of their specific profession, are supposed to care for the sick person even in the most painful terminal stages. The choice of euthanasia becomes more serious when it takes the form of a murder committed by others on a person who has in no way requested it and who has never consented to it. The height of arbitrariness and injustice is reached when certain people, such as physicians or legislators, arrogate to themselves the power to decide who ought to live and who ought to die. Once again, we find ourselves before the temptation of Eden to become like God who, quote, knows good and evil, unquote. See Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. God alone has the power over life and death. Quote, it is I who bring both death and life, unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See also Second Kings chapter 5, verse 7, and First Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. But he only exercises this power in accordance with a plan of wisdom and love. When man usurps his power, being enslaved by a foolish and selfish way of thinking, he inevitably uses it for injustice and death. Thus the life of the person who is weak is put into the hands of one who is strong. In society, the sense of justice is lost, and mutual trust, the basis of every authentic interpersonal relationship, is undermined at its root. 67. Quite different from this is the way of love and true mercy, which is our common hum which our common humanity calls for, and upon which faith in the Christ the Redeemer, who died and rose again, sheds ever new light. The request which arises from the human heart in the supreme confrontation with suffering and death, especially when faced with the temptation to give up in utter desperation, is above all a request for companionship, sympathy and support in the time of trial. It is a plea for help to help to keep in hope. It is a plea for help to keep on hoping when all human hope fails. As the Second Vatican Council reminds us, quote, it is in the face of death that the riddle of human existence becomes most acute, unquote. And yet, quote, man rightly follows the intuition of his heart when he abhors and repudiates the absolute ruin and total disappearance of his own person. Man rebels against death because he bears in himself an eternal seed which cannot be reduced to mere matter." Unquote. Pastoral, pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. 
This natural aversion to death and this incipient hope of immortality are illumined and brought to fulfillment by Christian faith, which both promises and offers a share in the victory of the risen Christ. It is the victory of the one who, by his redemptive death, has set man free from death. Quote, the wages of sin, unquote. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And he has given him the spirit, the pledge of resurrection and of life. See Romans 8, verse 11. The certainty of future immortality and hope in the promised resurrection casts new light on the mystery of suffering and death and fill the believer with an extraordinary capacity to, truly, to trust fully in the plan of God. The Apostle Paul expressed this newness in terms of belonging completely to the Lord who, practice, who embraces every human condition. Quote, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Unquote. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. Dying to the Lord means experiencing one's death as a supreme act of obedience to the Father. See Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being ready to meet death at the, quote, hour, unquote, willed and chosen by him. See John chapter 13, verse 1, which can only mean when one's earthly pilgrimage is completed. Living to the Lord also means recognizing that suffering, while still an evil and a trial in itself, can always become a source of good. It becomes such if it is experienced for love and with love through sharing by God's gracious gift and one's own personal and free choice in the suffering of Christ crucified. In this way, the person who lives his suffering in the Lord grows more fully conformed to him. See Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And more closely associated with his redemptive work on behalf of the church and humanity. See John Paul II, Apostolic Letter, Salvifici Dolores, February 21, 1984. This was the experience of St. Paul, which every person who suffers is called to relive. Quote, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Unquote. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. So I will pause here, and um, there'll be one more episode um, on chapter 3 before completing chapter 3. Thank you very much.